Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if, you, if you were hanging out in my part of town, Northwest Conway, I like to call it Northwest, you know, because that's cool. Um, Northwest Conway up there, there's this uh, intersection on Hogan and Old Moralton uh, Highway. Hogan and Hol- Old Moralton Highway. And, uh, and it's, it's an intersection that I go through quite regularly. And it's a bit of a challenge, to be honest. It, whether or not you are turning onto the highway or turning off of the highway, it's a challenge for the same reason. First of all, if you are turning onto the highway, particularly if you're going left, toward Moralton, then uh, you have to pull all the way out, all the way out, way past the line where you're supposed to stop behind. You just can't see. You can't see around the mountain. There's a mountain over there, and so you can't see around it. And so you need to pull all the way forward so you can see, make sure there's no sanitation trucks coming at you, that sort of stuff, the dumps off that way. Or if you are turning southbound on Hogan, if you turn this way, it becomes a challenge, particularly if there's somebody that's way out in the middle of the road because they're trying to see this direction. And, you know, you have to literally turn all the way around that. And it's nobody's fault. It's not the one turning left. It's not the one turning on Hogan. It is a blind spot. It's just something you can't see around. And so we all have to compensate. We all have to get some grace, that sort of stuff. They've been talking about a Um, an extension Hogan going a little bit further. They've been talking about a light. They've been talking about a roundabout. All of that would be welcome. All of it would be great because there's a blind spot there. And in life, in this story, blind spots come up. We have all sorts of blind spots in our lives, whether it's our perspectives, our opinions, and our spiritual walks. You can have blind spots with uh, the way that you interact with people, right? like in your marriage or in a relationship. You can have blind spots with your job. You can be doing the same thing over and over and over. And finally, somebody walks up to you one day and says, why are you doing it that way? You know, there's this way to do this. And you just didn't know. You weren't aware that there was another way to do something. And, and so blind spots are, are, are normal. They're natural. In fact, I would argue that everyone in this room, everyone watching online, we have a number of blind spots in our lives. And wouldn't you just by default think, you know, it'd be really great to know what those are and then to compensate for them or to eliminate them from our lives. That would be, that'd be good. It's like on your vehicle when the little light um, comes on on the, on the mirror there to let you know somebody in your blind spot. It'd be so cool to have that sort of stuff. We're going to examine that today. The story today centers on a man who was physically blind. He was born that way. And yet, even though that's an amazing thing that Jesus heals him, The story is overshadowed by those who are spiritually blind and the way they interact with this physically blind person who is healed. I mean, it's just completely overshadowed. And so we're going to spend some time asking and answering this question. Do you have spiritual blind spots? Are there any spiritual blind spots in your lives that maybe you could eliminate, you compensate for that we could fix. Let's pray together and then uh, we'll look at John chapter 9. God, thank you so much for those who have gathered here today. Uh, They want to make much of you. We want to come together in diversity, all sorts of different backgrounds, 
We know that there is no commitment or passion, there's no thought that would bring us together to which we would look at people and be around people that are so different in our backgrounds, in our raising, in our thoughts, and in our minds. And yet we look at one another and we say, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my family. So God, today, in that spirit of community and compassion, love for one another, I pray that we would be open to finding out, discovering if we are spiritually blind and if there are some things that we could do better and that we would do them. Give us the strength to do that, the faith to hear it, and the wisdom to apply it. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. John chapter 9. The whole chapter is about one story. Jesus heals a blind man. And yet it's broken into three sections. One through nine really sets the groundwork. Jesus um, comes upon a guy who is blind. And Jesus makes mention that he is the light of the world, which thematically ties it to last week's sermon. So if you didn't hear or see last week's sermon, then I would invite you to go back and watch that. It's on our website and we podcast it as well. And so there's this idea, this theme that Jesus is the light of the world. And it would make sense then for the author, for John to highlight very much after that, this, this story in which as light of the world, Jesus brings sight to those who are blind. That makes sense, and that's exactly what Jesus does. It's a bit odd, though. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. Jesus comes upon this guy, and he spits in the dirt and makes mud and then puts that on the blind guy's eye. Does that gross anybody else out besides me? I mean, I know it's our Messiah, but still, I would rather him not spit on me, right? And yet, that's how the story goes. And so he spit in the dirt, he made some mud, he put it on the guy's eyes, he tells him to go, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he does. It's an, it's an important detail, and you could preach the whole sermon just on this idea that the man hears, obeys, and he is healed. All right, that's sort of a key to life. Listen to what Jesus says, do what Jesus says, and live like Jesus says. And so that all happens, and um, there's some interesting dialogue that goes on. We're going to kind of unpack what happens next. But you can, especially if you've been in our John series thus far, then you know what is about to happen. Jesus just healed a guy. Just walked up and showed some grace. You know for a fact this is going to make people mad, all right? Why? We, we, I mean, it's just sort of a mystery. You know it's going to happen. In fact, if I told you this very important key, you know how the rest of the story is going to go. Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath. That's a trigger. It just makes people mad. I don't even understand why, but it just makes them mad. And so in the spirit of that, we're kind of looking at these spiritually blind people that get mad when Jesus heals a physically blind person, why, why are they that way? Why, why do they see things that way? Do I see things the same way they see things? I, I want to give a note before we go any further in this. We're going to talk about blindness today. We're going to talk about sight and vision, those sort of things. And I learned something this week. I became more aware of the way that I speak. And I thought I would pass it on to you guys. It's not necessarily biblical ideas, but I think it dovetails together. We in our English language, by necessity, speak about blindness in a certain way. We know that physically people can become blind or are blind for a number of different reasons, and yet in our language we speak about blindness normally in the context of either morally bankrupt, so they are blind, the blind leading the blind. We'll say something like that, you know, or they are intellectually lacking. So have you ever learned something and you say, oh, now I see, right? But you're a seeing person. You can see and yet we kind of equate the idea of uh, lower intellect with blindness. 
or uh, moral bankruptcy or moral deficiencies with those people are just blind, right? We'll say those sort of terminology. Now, I don't ascribe guilt to anybody for that. That's just by necessity the way that we talk. It's the way that our English language has evolved. I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was really a neat thing to, to, to become more aware of. So one of the things that I just want to say from the beginning is that we know and we should um, be careful about the way that we speak, particularly in a congregation or in a community in which there are people who cannot see. There are people who are, are going blind. There are people who are blind. And we need to be very clear that we're saying, we're not saying that physical blindness is equated to being less spiritually or intellectually. That's just something to become aware of and be better at the way that we talk. Now, you may be sitting there going, why do you even say that? What does it even matter? I mean, it sounds like you're woke is the way it sounds. You know, you might be thinking that. And I would say, um, I think it's always good. Always good to challenge ourselves to speak more accurately and to speak more compassionately. I think that's good. Also, I would challenge you in this way. That's exactly what the disciples were thinking. In fact, when they walked across the, the blind guy, they look at Jesus and they say, who sinned here? Who's morally bankrupt? Was it his parents? Did they do something wrong? And so he's blind now, or did he do something wrong? And so he's blind now. And Jesus has an opportunity to confront that sort of ignorance, that sort of um, assumption, that sort of uh, um, callous way of looking at uh, disabilities and that sort of stuff. And he says, neither. That's not why this happened. This happened to bring God glory. So it's really a fascinating thing to just say. And so saying that, I'm still going to, by necessity, use vision metaphorically this morning. And so we're asking our questions, what does it look like? What does it look like to be spiritually blind? Well, there's a couple of observations we can make. First of all, let's read a little bit of the text here. I'm going to begin up in verse 13. It says, And they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Don't you want to be like, why? Don't do that. Those guys are jerks. And then verse 14, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. And then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He says, he put mud on my eyes. He told me to, um, and I washed and I can see. I, I wonder if the guy knew how Jesus got that mud, right? He says, he put mud on my eyes. I don't know where he got it from. I watched and now I can see it in verse 16 and some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. This Jesus guy is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Isn't that a weird like pivot there? He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, I don't know, man. I mean, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them, which is often the case when you have a bunch of spiritually blind people talking. There was division among them. The first observation, the first thing that I see, when it, what does it look like to be spiritually blind? Well, the first thing they are is they have tunnel vision. They have zeroed in on something that doesn't matter. It's just something that doesn't matter. When we bring up this idea of the Sabbath there in this verse, this just reminds us, if you've been walking through John, that this is a trigger for them. They get mad every time that something like this is happening. The Sabbath just comes up over and over and over again. And to be fair, Jesus is sort of um, poking them in the eye on this one. When you read the Bible, our biblical scholars, there is debate on why Jesus made the mud in the first place. There's all sorts of theories and none of them we can actually prove, but one of the ideas is that Jesus was just looking around for a way to do work. He's like, um, I could heal this guy just by thinking about it, but let's do something that'll make those guys mad, you know? And so 
It's like, I'm going to make mud. Especially when you realize that in the first century, there was a law against, with the Jewish leaders, there was a law against kneading clay. You know, you ever messed with clay, made art, that sort of stuff? The, the kneading of the clay, there was a law against that. And so Jesus, in some ways, breaks that law. He breaks that rule as he's practicing the Sabbath. There's another thing that I want to say here, uh, because, as I said, we keep mentioning the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a good thing. It is a rule from God, and it is one that I believe that we should practice. Now, there are faithful, conservative, biblical Christians who differ on this, but I think that we should practice it. The Sabbath just simply means that you take a day of rest, that you are to work six days and take one for rest. God knows that you can't run your engine of your life at high all the time. You will eventually burn out, and you'll burn out sooner than you should. So he says you should take a rest. Also, by taking a rest, what we are acknowledging is that I don't run this world. I can literally cease to stop working on a whole day, and it just keeps going because God is in control. It is a worship act. There are some people that push back on that and say, the Sabbath is a Mosaic law. When Moses was writing down the laws, he said to observe the Sabbath. And, and that is true. However, the Sabbath is based in what God did, not in what Moses wrote. So God created six days and then he rested. Does God need to rest? Well, of course not. He did it for um, example. He did it for illustration. He did it to show us what we are supposed to do. Also, Mosaic law says not to murder or have an affair or steal. And we're still good with all those laws. And so maybe we should take a rest as well. So my point is this. I believe that Jesus kept the Sabbath. I believe that he was good with the Sabbath. He liked the Sabbath. It's not that Jesus is pushing back on the Sabbath when he kneads clay or when he tells a man to carry his mat. It's that Jesus is pushing back on these extra rules that were built around the good rule. That the Jews at the time so much wanted to make sure that nobody, nobody does work on the Sabbath that they made up all these extra rules and they just sort of uh, bubble wrapped God's law in a way that if anybody were to breach that barrier, then they were sinning. And Jesus is pushing back on all that. A way that we would say it is that Jesus is pushing back on the traditions of men. Just these fake, extra, legalistic laws that are all piled up that Jesus never said, God never intended. Jesus is pushing back on all of that. And this really lands with us today. And what we're concerned with is the fact that this just seems to be a constant and a steady hangup for these guys. They just can't get over it. They have tunnel vision. They are locked in on the rule of law instead of the, uh, uh, the relationship of love or, or, you know, the way that faith works. This happens all the time in our religious practices that we would create these extra things that people have to do, the way that they have to dress the words that they can and cannot say, what they can and cannot partake in, what they are allowed to do and behave and when they should be somewhere and which denomination they should line up with and all of this sort of stuff. We build all of these rules and all these extra laws around our faith in Christ that you cannot find even the semblance of in Scripture. That's what Jesus is pushing back on. We still do that. We are so very tempted to do that. But I also find it in a more practical way now in our current culture, there's this law of science, which throughout COVID, understandably, became very questionable, right? Nobody understands that or agrees with that. And a lot of that is principally based on the idea that nobody really even understands what science is and isn't. Science is not um, laws of God. Science can be, science is a practice of observing, creating um, guesses, 
or hypothesis and then observing the, the facts and, and messing with the factors to see what happens. That's what science does. It observes what happens. And so one way that this happens in our faith is that sometimes people will say, I can't believe in Jesus the way that you believe in Jesus. I can't follow Jesus the way that you follow Jesus because no man can do the things that you claim that he did. No man can make the lame walk or the blind see or come back from death to which we as Christians say, exactly. He's not a mere man. He's God. I am not even apologizing when I tell you this. There's a ton of things that I believe and I hold and I literally base my life on that I cannot logically prove. But I would also point this out. So do you. So does everyone. There are so many things that you believe, that you base your life on, that you cannot emphatically prove. And yet you just trust. You have to trust the source. How this fleshes out here is I'm not at all saying that those who are scientifically minded are bad or are less spiritual. In fact, I believe that history has shown us that most of the best scientists we've ever had were theists at least, if not Christian. What I am saying is that the spiritually blind have this tunnel vision. They lock in on a rule of man, something that we have created, something that we have made, but the spirit moves in mysterious ways. There has to be room for that in your life. There has to be in your life, if you're going to be a, a spirit-led person, if you're going to see the world through God's eyes, then you have to allow for some of it to just not make sense to you. You know why? You're not God. And the spiritually blind zero in on rules and regulations at the detriments of relationships for other people. So in this case... The Spirit of God that created the human eye fixed the human eye on the Sabbath, so get over it. It's what he did, and he's allowed to do that. That's God. We need to let God lead, but the spiritually blind cannot see that. When you have this sort of fixation on rules and regulations, the sort of things that God never intended that man created, and like some of them, you know, you create laws and rules and stuff. Like God didn't say, there's no law in the Bible that says, uh, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. But it's a good idea, all right? It's a good idea. So I'm not saying that all man-made rules are bad. That's not at all the case. It's just that the relationship of love is what dominates it, what guides us in this. And when you fixate on rules, you're going to naturally mistreat other people, which brings us to this next idea. Not only do they have tunnel vision, but they also have a very dim view of others. The spiritually blind have a very dim view of other people and their value and, and what they contribute to society. Look at verse 17, and again, again, that's how I read that, and again they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Oh, he's a prophet, he said. And the Jews did not believe this about him. When I first read that phrase, I thought the Jews did not believe that Jesus was a prophet, but that's not what it says. They did not believe that he was blind and he received his sight. So they summoned the parents and the ones of the man who had received sight, which makes me say, why do you got to bring the family into this, right? Just leave those folks out of this. And they asked them, is this your son? The one you say was born blind. We don't really believe you. How then does he now see? Verse 20, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We know that. His parents say, verse 21, but we don't know how he now sees. 
We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's grown. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, he would be banned. They would be banned from the religious community, the daily religious activities. And this is why his parents said, I don't know, ask him, he's grown. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews, they did not believe that this guy was blind and then now could see, not because they don't believe in miracles, they believe in miracles. It's just because they didn't respect anybody else's opinion. Verse one through nine tells us that it's his neighbors who bring him. His neighbors, they know him. They've seen him blind. They know what he looks like. They know his name. They know his backstory. They went to high school together. They know this guy and they bring him to the Pharisees and say, this guy was blind, now he sees. They don't believe him. The guy's standing there going, I was blind my whole life, but now I see. They don't believe him. And now they've got the parents scared. They've got the parents worried that if they were to disagree with the Pharisees, then they would be cast out, that they would be banned from the religious practices. It's an utter, complete disrespect in the opinions or the values or the, or, or the observations of another person, the testimony of other people. They just don't believe them. What the Pharisees, catch what they're saying here is this. They are telling the nation, you may have eaten bread that this guy made out of just a little bit. He, he, he handed you bread that he miraculously created. You could have eaten that. You could have seen him walk on water. You could have been standing there when the paralyzed began to walk and you could be blind and now see. And if you disagree with us, you're out utter disrespect for other people. But that's what the spiritually blind do. Those who are not seeing people through the eyes of God, those who do not see people with spirit-led eyes, they see other people as less than, as dumber than, as not to be listened to. You can see it in verse 28. It says that they ridiculed him. One translation says that they hurled insults at the guy. He was blind 24 hours ago. Now you got him standing up in front of everybody just insulting him. You've scared his parents. You're insulting him. And then eventually in verse 34, they throw him out like trash, like rubbish, like he doesn't even matter. For what? Why does he get thrown out? Because he was blind. And now he sees. There's just this utter disrespect. The Spirit of God teaches us that people are worthy of basic respect to all people. Literally, the Bible teaches us if they want to kill you, you are to love them. That's what the Bible teaches us, that we are to strive to show them compassion. We don't meet people with threats or isolation. We don't disagree with somebody and so we cut them out. We don't push them off to the side and just throw them away. We don't ridicule or hurt. The anti-Jesus view of the world has no category for this. There's no way to subscribe or ascribe people value or worth outside of some sort of God-given value or intrinsic worth. If you're just a, a, a collection or a lump of cells, and let me tell you this, if the child is a lump of cells in the womb, then you are a lump of cells outside of the womb, that there is no value in humanity. If we are just here by chance or circumstance, if we're just here accidentally, then there is no real value. Then it's nothing more than the animal can, kingdom. Eat or be eaten, destroy, kill or be killed. There's no value in another person outside of this view that when we see other people, we see people created in the image of God, all people. 
And they are to be valued and respected, at least on some basic level. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say or even appreciate everything they say, but you do have to respect them. When we see other people through Jesus' eyes, Jesus confronts this idea that people are worthless on every possible level. You can see it all throughout this text. Next chapter, next week, Jesus loses his cool, all right? He loses his cool and he really goes after these guys. But so far, Jesus has sought out the outsider. He has helped the hurting. He has friended the friendless. If you are considered less in this society, Jesus has made sure that you and everybody else knows you have value, that you are loved, that you are cared for. Does he love the world? Yes, he does. Jesus confronts this idea. So those who are spiritually seeing see people with great worth and value. The spiritually blind are locked in on law and not love, rules and not relationships. They see people as commodity or transactionally. They see themselves as greater than they are. Look at 24 through 34. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this Jesus is a sinner. And he answered them, one of the greatest lines in all of the Bible not spoken by deity. He answered them, whether or not he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Verse 26, and then they asked him, what did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? You can just see the tension. You can feel that sort of stuff. I would truly honestly think the guy that was blind his whole life, whose parents are scared, whose neighbors are standing there quiet, they brought him in here, say something, dude, you know? He would uh, be timid, he would back down. He does not, I like this guy. He says, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you wanna hear it again? You wanna become one of his disciples too, do you? So he's a little sarcastic too, I like that. Verse 28, and they ridiculed him, threw insults at him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, which is true. But this man, we don't know where he came from. You guys are amazing, he says in verse 30. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He said, let me just lay this out to you like you're five. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout all of history, no one has ever heard of anybody opening the eyes of a person that was born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. All that made him mad. Verse 34, they said, you were born entirely in sin. So they're ascribing to that idea that blindness means morally, you know, bankrupt. You were born entirely, and they're probably, are you trying to teach us? You're a sinner, and we're educated, which is really a false dichotomy. And then they threw him out, like trash. They just threw him out. Not only are the spiritually blind uh, have tunnel vision, and not only do they have a dim view of other people, but they also are very myopic. They can't see past themselves. Now, metaphorical use of this word means that you can't see past yourself, that you are only concerned with you, your values, your plans, your input, and you can't see other people. It's a very deadly consequence. You can see it again in verse 24 when they say, give glory to God, when in reality, they want the glory. We know you don't know anything. That's the truth. That's the fact. That's the reality. Whenever there's a conflict in this, there's very little that you actually know. Know to be true. You can hold on to that. You can base opinions on that. But 
they don't know if Jesus is a sinner. And we all have the point of view of saying, you're way off on this. You are really, really wrong on this. In verse 34, this is when they get all indignant. And are you trying to teach us? This guy bows up, stands up, has a backbone, and just lays it all out and says, logically, you guys are not real smart. Just logically. Just basing it off of what we know, what I know, you guys are not smart. He healed me. He is from God, period. What sort of arrogance did these people have that they not only look down on others and mistreat others, but they made themselves God. To be spiritually sighted is to be humble. Hear me on this. If you see the world through the eyes of God, then you ought to be humbled. When you look around, you need to know that the world does not revolve on the axis of your preferences. That God is at work and you can join him or not, but the work will keep going. It's like I always say, those who think that the church rises and falls on them are right. All of those people that let me know all the time that, the, that this church, the local church, whatever the church is, rises and falls on them are absolutely correct. Everything feels low and sluggish when they're here and it finally gets better when they leave. It rises and falls. God does not need you. God does not need me. And yet, he chooses to work through us. See, this really drove the uh, Jews crazy. They believed that they were vital. They believed that all of God's mission depended on them and them keeping everybody else in line. And it drove them crazy that this, this uneducated dude from Galilee that will not listen to them was turning the world upside down because what that meant on some very basic level was that God could work outside of them. Listen, God does not need you, and yet it is such a great grace that he chooses to work through you. You get playing time. He cheers for you. He puts you in the game. He will celebrate when you draw the foul, even if you don't make the free throws. God loves you, and he's there with you. He doesn't need you, but because he is God, he chooses to work in and through you. He is a good, good father. So those who are spiritually blind, they zero in on things that do not matter. They see others as less, and they have an inflated view of themselves. And I really don't like spending a whole morning talking about the spiritually blind, the Pharisees, right? Those guys are, they're rude. They're rude. They're mean. And they're just, they're what I call, this is my particular... Uh, Grievance, they are willfully ignorant. They choose to be this dense, right? And so it, it's, it's, it's horrible to, to spend a whole day on them. So let's take for a minute, just the, uh, the last few minutes, and let's focus in on the, on the guy who was healed. Remember I said at the beginning that it's very important that we recognize that he was born blind. They keep saying that. They want you to know. There's a bunch of ways to lose your sight, but he never had it. And Jesus tells us in the next few texts that the whole thing was about the spiritual, not necessarily about the physical. It was about the spiritual. And so what that reminds us is that we too are born blind. You were born spiritually blind. You cannot see. You do not know. And yet it is by God's grace that he interjects, that he interrupts, and then he gives you sight, that the, uh, that the light of the world would give us sight to those who would trust and believe in him. Uh, down there in verse 35, Jesus heard 
that they had thrown the man out. I wonder what that conversation was like. Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out, and when, and when he went and found him, he went looking for him, and he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you right now. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. The call for you is to see spiritually who Jesus is, who you are, your need for Jesus, and to worship him. Look at Matthew 13, 15 through 16. It says, for this people's heart has grown callous. They have shut their eyes. The spiritually blind, they do this on purpose. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see. So do you see Jesus as he is? Do you trust Jesus? The idea is this, call out to Jesus. Those of you who are blind and he will give you sight. He will heal you if you believe him and trust him. So application wise, you gotta really just ask yourself, do you have these blind spots? Hear me on this. Um, Not when you're driving. That one doesn't seem to bother any of us. We want to be really hyper aware of our blind spots, right? You might test drive a vehicle and you might not buy a vehicle because it has blind spots. This is just a normal thing. But the rest of our lives, like our spirit, our soul, our relationships, our marriages, our our friendships, that sort of stuff, if anybody even tries to tell you that you have a blind spot, we get all bristly about it, right? It's like an insult to my intellect, an insult to my experience. I know what I'm doing. You can't tell me, that sort of stuff. And so man, I relate to that. I feel that. I'm the same way, the same way as you. So you ask yourself, I'm not pointing this out in your life. I'm just asking you, do you ever just get fixated on the way things should be to the detriment of relationships? This is your view of how a wife should behave. This is somehow your created view of what a husband should be. This is your created view of exactly how so-and-so should behave what they should say and what they should dress like and the way that they should behave or else they're not close to God. And so you hold them to some standard. Does that that ever happen to you? And you believe you are right and you might be, but maybe you're not. Do you ever ever use people accidentally? I know you're not doing it on purpose, but do you have any relationships in which when you guys get together and y'all talk like 99% of it is about you? your plans, your passions, your dreams, and how the other person could help you achieve all of that. Not really taking into account that they have passions, dreams, giftings, the image of God in them as well. Do you have an inflated view of yourself? And I think the biggest way to tell this is, have you gotten to the point in your life in which you're not ever even in a circumstance where somebody else can speak into your life? You're the king or queen of your life. You've lived long enough. You don't, have, you don't have coaches or teachers or parents anymore. You just do this whole thing. That's, not, that, that's a recipe for spiritual blindness. You need somebody else. You need to listen. You need to listen to your pastor. You need to listen to the scriptures. You need to listen to your small group leaders. You need to go out and find podcasts and books and things that challenge your heart. That when you read them, you go, ah, I got that. I do this and I'm going to change. Do you have these spiritual blind spots? Y'all ever watch those Fixer Upper shows? Y'all do that? Fixer Upper set the bar, you know, down in Waco. 
uh, Joanna, she set the bar. They're all the same thing after that. But now the two most popular, I think, I'm not like up on this. I don't, you know, I don't follow this really well, but the two most popular are hometowns. Hometown, y'all know that one? That's in Laurel, Mississippi. And man, she loves Laurel. If you watch it, you know what I'm talking about. Laurel, Mississippi is amazing to me. It seems like it's a town similar to Conway, and yet we can't keep a Panera bread, and they've got artisan glassmakers down in Laurel. That girl wants, like, unique uh, custom-made wallpaper. She just runs down the street to Jim Bob, who's making that stuff, you know. I don't, I, Laurel seems different to me. But it's a good show. It's a nice show. They seem funny. Then there's also the, like, the home state favorite. It's called Fixer to Fabulous. Have y'all seen this? This is in Bentonville. And uh, they do the same thing, right? They, they fix up these things. And, and so I'm kind of curious. They seem to be popular shows, so I was just going to see. How many of you are team hometown? Anybody that's like, you just like that show a lot? There's a few of you. Any of y'all like team Fixer to Fabulous? You're like, it's Arkansas, I like it more. How many of you like, I hate those shows. They drive me crazy. The last service was like, yeah, I hate these things. And I get it. It feels so scripted, right? It is so scripted. It starts off with this young couple that has so much money. She's a substitute teacher and he's in between jobs and they're looking for a million and a half dollar property. It's like, what are you doing? Is it illegal? You know you have to pay taxes, right? And they find this dump of a house with something weird like this crazy wallpaper, shag carpet or, or a bathroom, a full bath off of the shed. And they buy this thing. And then they start renovations and then they run into a problem. Who, nobody saw that coming. They run into a problem and they have to call the homeowner. But turns out it's okay. They can serve, save some money here or there, no worries. And then the male star of the show says something stupid and everybody laughs. And then HGTV shows the same exact commercial 82 times in a row. And then boom, big reveal. It is so, it's the same thing every single time. And I am a sucker for it. I watch it and I'm like, oh good, another one started. Let's watch this one. Maybe this couple will be different, right? I watch it and the thing that's most impressive to me, uh, I mean, I could watch just hours of just the, the, the end, right? Before and after photos, that sort of stuff. That's what I like. But the thing that's impressive to me is that the star of this show, whichever she it is, she can see past so many things. She walks into a house and she's like, I could really see some hardwood floors throughout here. He's like, I mean, we all see that, right? But she sees walls where there are not walls, big, beautiful kitchens where there are not big, beautiful kitchens, white tile in every single bathroom she has ever walked into. She sees this vividly. In one of the shows, she'll paint a picture of it before they even get started. It's this really amazing thing to see past what is to make it beautiful. Then this morning you are invited to see your life and your actions and your behaviors the way that Christ sees them. To see you the way that God sees you. To see him and his laws and other people and the, and, and the role that you have. To see it the way that God sees it. To look past all of that, not be embarrassed by the way that it is, but to be challenged and encouraged for the way that God will make it, to no longer be blind, but to see. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family.
Thank you for listening.